0: Please remain standing for the reading of the word. The text this morning is from John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not. the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As your prophet says. Comfort, oh, comfort, my people, you write. God, that you would speak kindly to us through your word. That you would call out that warfare has ended and their iniquity has been removed, God. And we have received from the Lord's hands double for all our sins. God, there is and there was a voice calling out in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness and make smooth in the desert a highway for our God that every valley of our hearts would be lifted up. God, that... The streams of our hearts and our emotions and our affections would be driven towards you right now. And that you would be glorified again through your word as you have been. Revealing yourself through your word and glorifying yourself through your word. For thousands of years now. God, we ask that you would do that now. That you would be glorified that we would know you more, that we would love you more, that we would trust you more, and that we would worship you with all of our hearts and devotion. Amen. After Willie died, Tad became the recipient of his father's playful and affectionate love. Not the the sole recipient, but the main recipient of his father's playful love. And his father, this grown man, a giant of a man, would get on the ground and wrestle and play with his son, Tad, even though he was 12, 13, 14 years old at the time. And the very next moment, this giant of a man who's on the floor, unbecomingly, wrestling with his son, The very next moment, he would get a dispatch from General Grant that Richmond was about to be taken. And it was inevitable that Lee was going to surrender. Which he did at the Appomattox Courthouse roughly a week later. And here you have in this one man such a a wide horizon, yet within one life. Here's a man on the floor wrestling with his kids. Doting on them loving them the very next this same man at that same moment is still presiding over our country keeping it together as rebelling is trying rebellion is trying its best to rip it apart we'd like to reduce people so that we can just kind of characterize them like oh this man he's he's a he's a thief or this man's a butcher or this man is is weak and then as though that one attribute will characterize all of their life. But what we see is that this wide horizon is possible. Not only possible at different moments in their life as we mature and progress and grow, but even at the same very moment. And that's what we see in our text this morning. What you're going to see with Christ is that he is the king, it's quite explicit in the, in the text. Verse 13, we've read it. Even to the king of Israel. So here you have in the text, this, this Christ, this Messiah whom we worship, He is the king. But then what you will also see is that at the very moment that He is the king, He is also the Lamb. The Lamb of God. That's what I want you to take away out of this text and, and dwell on it this week. Is that Christ is both at the same time the Lamb of sacrifice and the King who rules and reigns over every aspect, every decision, every sphere of your life. He is both. And one is necessitated upon the other. You can't just be the king. He's the king of sacrifice. And we can't just think of him as the one who is sacrificed without realizing that he does rule and reign over all of his creation. So as we do with so many people within history, we can't reduce him down to one attribute. Or one thing that makes us feel comfortable. So, how are we going to see this in the text here? Verses 12 and 13. We're in John chapter 12. If you're not there, open up your Bibles. John chapter 12. Oh, and and so you know, we're going to be going to uh, several places. So in your mind, have John chapter 12 from our text. Zechariah 9 that we read. Or Curtis read already. We're going to be going there. Psalm 118 as well. Which is quoted in this text as well. And then also, if your mind can handle it, you can go to Exodus 12. So those kind of four passages... We'll be building off of. So. Where are we going to see this? In this text though. That Christ is. The Lamb of sacrifice. And the King of Israel. Verses 12 and 13. What are we going to see? We're going to see that. The King and the Lamb. All tied together. Right there. Verses 12 and 13. 14 and 15. You see how Christ is going to reign as King. Through sacrifice. And then finally. Finally. How do we understand this? How does this make sense? Well, you can see what the disciples, it didn't make sense until after the resurrection. So it's through the lens of the resurrection that we can understand all that has happened here. So, Christ is Lamb and King. You're going to see Him enter in. You're going to see that He reigns through sacrifice. And that we must understand this, like the disciples, through the resurrection. Let's go to the text here. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come from the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. First thing you notice that John cares about the, the sequence of events. He's given you clues this is not the same day, this is the very next day. And it's important, as we'll get to later, why he's mentioning that. On the day prior, so this would be on Sunday, on the day prior, on Saturday, you see that Christ is, his feet are being anointed by Mary, who took upon a very costly perfume, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Of the perfume. All of that is. Happening on Saturday. And now it's on Sunday. And Christ is going to make his grand entrance. His grand entrance of humility. This is not like the triumphal entry of Caesar. With his four white horses. Drawing his grand chariot. Or Pompey. Who uh, harnessed elephants for his grand triumph. To come into Rome. But. The funny thing is, they wouldn't fit through under the arch. So they were, they were prepared, but then they couldn't actually make their way through Rome because they couldn't fit through the arch. This is not at all like our Messiah. Jesus Christ is starting in Bethany, which is about five miles east of Jerusalem. The, the, the city is filled with people. So they're out five miles east of Jerusalem. And as you approach, you have these five rolling hills that then come up to the Mount of Olives. Somewhere along there, when Jesus comes up over the horizon and begins to see the city, he weeps, and we see in Luke, he weeps over Jerusalem. Not this soft weeping, um, a mournful cry, as you have in Lazarus' tomb, but like this deep wailing over the city, As though he can see it in its present beauty. He sees the walls. He sees the temple. He sees the people there. Congregated together. He sees the children running around. But in his mind he knows. What will become of that city. Because of their rejection. Of him as Messiah. Within 30 years. The walls would be gone. The temple would be torn apart. Every stone would not be left unturned. And the children, so many of them that are running around in joyful exuberance, will be crucified by the Romans as part of God's judgment for them. And he begins with this to descend down into the Kidron Valley. And this nationalistic fever and fervor is is rising up all around them. Josephus, a historian, a Jewish historian who would write for the Romans, he said, I I think he's overestimating a lot, but he said 3.7 million people would be there in Jerusalem. I don't think that's possible, but even if he's way off, and it's a million people, that's that's unthinkable to have a million people all right there in Jerusalem for this time. And the word begins to spread that this, this Jesus, he's coming, he's coming. The one that, that, raised up Lazarus from the dead, he's coming, he's coming. So what is he, what is he going to do? Well, I don't know, I don't know, but I'm sure he's going to do whatever I want him to do. Yes, he will. Don't you remember those, those famed men of old? David and Moses and Judas Maccabeus. They came and they brought us deliverance. I know this king. This Messiah will be just like this. And they're so close and what they expect Christ to do. But just like us, they expect him to do one thing, but he does so much more. And so they're surrounding him here. And they took branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet him. So why palm branches? Here's you want to know why? You look in the Old Testament. And you, you go, okay, where's palm branches? Waving palm branches. Oh, it's in Leviticus 23. Well, that doesn't help because it's the Festival of Booths. That's not Passover. We're Passover here in John 12. So that doesn't really help. Okay. We're here in John 12. We'll, we'll look back to... That doesn't make sense. We'll look forward to Revelation. You see, there, Revelation 7, when all of God's people, the nations, are gathered around the throne room clothed in white robes, waving palm branches in her hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation begins to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, that will come, but that doesn't really explain what's happening here in John 12. So if you can't figure it out from there, sometimes it's helpful to look outside of the Bible to see what's culturally what what could be happening here. Uh, About 160 years earlier, uh why well, maybe at this point hundred and ninety years earlier uh, Judas Maccabeus had led a revolt, the Maccabean revolt from one hundred sixty seven to one sixty BC, in which the Jewish people came and broke free from this the reigning Greek Empire. What well, was left of it before the Romans came in and mopped up. They broke free. And Judas, not a scariot, is riding in and the people, as you have the accounts there, the people, what do they do? They take palm branches and they begin waving it. Because their nationalistic deliverer is there. And he will redeem them. So, the people see Christ coming. And they're thinking the same thing. Here's our nationalistic deliverer. And he will oppress. he will deliver us from those who are oppressing us. And they're right. He will. He will deliver them. But the question is, who or what is oppressing you? So they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Christ is coming now from Bethany and you come about five miles and you have these five rolling hills and you go down and then it becomes to get quite steep and the road jagged goes back and forth and you get down into the Kidron Valley before you come up slightly to come into the east side of Jerusalem. And they're waving palm branches. The throngs of people are there. And what would happen is that you have, in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, you would have the, it's called the halal. And they would sing it quite a bit around the, the Passover. So when you get to the Lord's Supper, the, and it says, and they sung, and they, when they were finished singing hymns, they would have sung these, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, some of them, they would have sang those throughout the, the Passover meal. So it's quite common that they would sing this. And then we get to, to Psalm 118. And the people are coming towards the city. And much like we did with the call to worship. They would sing it back and forth. Back and forth. So they would get to verse 25. And they would say, Oh Lord, we beseech you. And then the people coming to Jerusalem would respond. Oh Lord, we beseech you. Do send us prosperity. And then they don't even realize what's happening. That's the beauty of it. They don't even realize what's happening. As they in the city are welcoming the travelers to come into Jerusalem, then they're singing out, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the travelers would respond. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. One side singing, and He has given us life. And then they begin singing. Bind up the festival sacrifice with cords with the horns of the altar. And they would sing back and forth until they got the last verse. And then they would sing all of that together. You are last two. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His love, fast everlasting love, endures forever beautiful what's happening here. So in Psalm 2, this is like a coronation Psalm, 118. Psalm 2, you have, what is the, what is the reign of the king look like? What's the king going to do? In Psalm 2, you see that he will hold all of the nations under my feet. I will tell the, of the decree the Lord said unto me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will give all of the nations to you as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like earthenware. That's what the king looks like. That's what he does. What's his coronation look like? Well, that's what you see in Psalm 18. Look at it. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will enter through them. And I will give thanks to the Lord. Shortly before this, in his ministry, Christ has made it abundantly clear that he is the gate. You see how all of this is pointing towards the Messiah. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. And I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And here they are singing out over their Messiah, not even realizing it. And you have become, they would sing, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the key chief cornerstone, pivotal for the understanding of Paul and Peter and their understanding of the gospel in the role of Christ. This is the Lord's doing. This is marvelous in our eyes. They're singing this. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And here is their Messiah coming. And what you begin to see here is that I sing. Here's the coronation of the king. That's what it looks like. And they're singing over it, not realizing that their king is coming at that moment. And what else do you see in this? Bind up the festal sacrifice with cords and the horns of the altar. You can separate the king and the sacrifice, the king and the lamb. It's right there, even in Psalm 118. You can separate them. You have a king, and inherently tied into that is the Lamb of Sacrifice. No one thought that we would actually be the same person. You read Psalm 118, and I'm sure they're thinking the king will, will enjoy, just like David, just like Solomon, especially Solomon would make these sacrifices, these grand sacrifices. Even though he wasn't a priest, he would have it done no one ever imagined that the king would actually be the lamb that the king himself would be the one who was sacrificed who would do that what king would do that no you have other people sacrifice you have other people fight the battles you don't do it yourself that's why you're the king if you don't want to do that well, just be a peasant if you want to be the one to sacrifice no that's not how it works he's the king and he is the lamb so to understand this a little bit more we'll say, how do we do this as we're reading through John how do we understand gospel narrative when you guys are kids and you go to elementary school I don't think homeschoolers I don't think we really do this uh, but you have home, uh, show and tell right when you would come and you would show somebody this thing? Maybe you bring a frog from home or whatever. And you tell them all about them. You show them and then you tell them. Well, when John's writing the gospel, he will often show you. But he will very rarely tell you. So we're going to look to see how the king and the lamb fit together. We see a Christ as king. How do we see Christ as the lamb? In order to get here, we're going to talk about John and... And his imagery of the Exodus throughout John and then focusing in on Christ as the Lamb. So it's Exodus throughout John. How do we see this? In Exodus chapter 3, you see that Moses is out there. He's a shepherd and you see this burning bush on Mount Orb. Later on, Mount Sinai, same place. And he sees this burning bush. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. So you have this, this I am statements from God in the Exodus. Throughout John, you have these seven sayings of Christ saying it, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the the gate. You see in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 15, I am the vine. Abide in me and you will have life. John's not going to tell you, but he's going to show you how he's developing these parallel themes. That's going to culminate in Christ being the Lamb. If within the plagues, you have the the ten plagues. The first one is water into wine. The next or the last one is the death of the firstborn son. Not surprisingly, in John, you have water into blood, and then water into wine, with John. last miracle, the death of the firstborn son and his resurrection. You have deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. John chapter 20, you see that you have peace now with God. And also that you have Israel as a community, as part of this exodus. Who are we as a people? God calls Israel, you are my firstborn son. Thus said, Moses, Moses should say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Then at the end of John, Jesus does this same thing and develops this new identity of believers. Who are they? How do they relate to one another? Well, Jesus said to her, to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. To be to my God and to your God. So John will show you, but he will not tell you. Then we'll focus in now on Christ as the Lamb, as the Lamb was critical for the Passover. What's the first introduction you see of Jesus? In the flesh. You know that He's pre-existent, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, lights of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, right? Right? You know that. But when Christ is in the flesh, what's our first introduction to him? How does John want to shape how we see Christ? He's on the Jordan. And John cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how you understand the Messiah. And not only that, but you have the Passover lamb that was to be surrounded in Exodus 12, chapter, or Exodus chapter 12, verse, verse 8. They shall eat the, 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 the flesh, the lamb, the same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And John's the one who goes out of his way to show in the crucifixion account that he's surrounded by three women whose name means bitter. Ma, Mary. You have the sacrificed lamb whose bones were not to be broken. You see that in John chapter 19. And again, you see the lamb who's slain and pierced. You see that as well. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and once there came out blood and water. These things took place that scripture might be fulfilled, even with the breaking of the bones, that not one of his bones shall be broken. So, John's not going to tell you, but he's going to show you in an even more powerful way that Christ is the King. And He is the Lamb who rules and reigns. And to make this even better, why does John care that it's the next day and that it's Sunday? It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 3. Speaks to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they each take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. So, on the tenth of the month, They bring the lamb in, and on the 14th, they sacrifice it. John's making it very clear the next day. So it's on Sunday. That day is the 10th of their first month, Nisan. So do do you see it? It's not just Christ, the lamb, who is the lamb. But it's everybody else. All these children, everybody else from the household, have gone out, likely to Bethlehem or somewhere else, Purchased a lamb, and they are bringing in their lambs to their household at the very same time when Christ, the Lamb of God, is going into the city of God. The children are bringing the lambs into their house just as Christ is going into the city of God and into the house of God to be the sacrifice of God. It's beautiful. How does it all fit together? Verse 14. And Jesus Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Go to Zechariah chapter 9. Go to Matthew, Malachi, one before it. Zechariah chapter 9. It's talking about the deliverance. Zechariah, uh, Haggai, Malachi or and Malachi and Zechariah, they're post-exilic prophets, so they're in Jerusalem after the people have gone out of Babylon's captivity and back into the city, and they're building it up once again. And he's encouraging them finish building the temple, much like, uh, much like Haggai. But he tells them, "Rejoice, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion." Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. This king is going to bring salvation. Don't you understand that? How is he going to come? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt of a donkey. Not even a donkey. The the colt of a donkey. A fall of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse of Jerusalem and with the bow of war. It will be cut off. Warfare will end. And he will speak peace to the nations. And he's king, so his dominion will be from sea to sea. And from the rivers to the ends of the earth. But how does he do it? How does this king bring peace? Is it through war? No, the, the bows are done. Warfare is ended. How does he how does this king bring peace? As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. He held up the third cup, the third self. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. But as for you, Zechariah 9 verse 11. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit. The people want deliverance. And they're going to get it. But just like us. They want deliverance. But they. We just want deliverance of temporal things. We'll pick up the rest of the verses next week. If this is true. How do we live? If Christ is. But the lamb and the king. But you see that. The people respond perfectly. How do you do it? How do you respond? Well, you worship Christ. You see him reigning and ruling through sacrifice. How does it not bring you to worship? It does bring you to the worship. That Christ is the lamb of God. Who will be sacrificed for our sins. He can rule and reign, but if He rules and reign without being the Lamb, He'll rule and reign over all of us in hell. Still be glorified. But God loves His people. God loves you. If you repent and turn to Him. God will rule and reign over you in your life. You you will rebuff it and walk against it. Or you will see him as the lamb of sacrifice and you will delight in it. And you will ask him to reign over not just your life, but down to the smallest of details. The darkest pits of your heart, you will ask him to rule and reign over them. So, perfect. Worship is a perfect response to Christ being the lamb and the king. That's number one. Number two. We have to follow, not both of these paths, but this same path. Christ is the Lamb and the King, all in one. And we like to separate them out. And either we love Christ ruling and reigning and being victorious, and we delight in that, but we know nothing of suffering as Christ suffered. And we will avoid it at every cost. Yes, I love that Christ rules over the nations. I will not go myself. I will not watch my son go to the nations. No. I won't give for that. So we love that Christ rules and reigns, but we know nothing of suffering or it's flipped. And our life is nothing but self-induced loathing, needless loathing. And we know nothing that Christ is actually victorious. And he rules and reigns even over our lives. Even when we, we hate our present circumstances. Christ still rules and reigns over them. They're not separated. In which we keep them out of balance. They are one in the same. And to follow our Messiah. And to walk on the same path. is to love both of them. And to both suffer for the call of Christ. To pick up our cross and follow him. And to delight in the fact that he rules and reigns over all things. We don't separate them. So, number one, we see that worship is the perfect response. Number two, both of them we hold in our lives. Number three, we have to prepare our hearts for the triumphal entry. Yes, it happened 2,000 years ago. But it's going to happen again. Christ will come Into his creation again. And he won't be riding a colt or a foal. He's going to be riding riding a white horse. Named Faithful and True. And he will exact justice over all of his people. And everybody who walks in rebellion to this king. Who comes riding on his horse. that's With a robe that's dipped in blood. Blood before the battle. Because he's the lamb. And it's his own blood. And it's by that blood that he has victory. And he will come and rule and reign. Over all of his enemies and for eternity have them pressed underneath his feet. Prepare your hearts for this triumphal entry that we will see and we pray it comes very soon. Let us pray. Our heavenly father, we We have hearts that are like the disciples. We see so much, but we cannot comprehend it, God. We ask that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds to delight in your Son as both the Lamb and as the King. God, as we suffer, we ask that you would bind us up as you bound up. Your son, and that you would give us hope in the resurrection, knowing the worst that can happen to us is that we die and go to sudden glory with you. God, if we are suffering, give us that hope that we have in your son. And God, we ask if you, if we have hearts that rebelled against the rule and reign of your son as king, that you would break us. that You would humble us. Let us delight knowing that our King is your Son. It is never ourselves. Let us look to Him to rule and reign over our, over our hearts. And God, we ask and we pray. Dear Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Come very soon. Amen. Amen.